everybody, and welcome back to Pidea Today. I am joined, as usual, by my colleague, Dr. Scott Masson, and I am Dr. Bill Friesen. And today, we are looking at uh, an extremely interesting work of literature uh, by William Shakespeare, uh, the play Hamlet, argued by some to be one of the richest plays ever written by one of the greatest playwrights who ever lived. Um, and one of the things we should say right at the beginning here is that uh, we are now s situated very firmly in the English Renaissance, not to be confused with the Italian Renaissance, which uh, is a Renaissance with different dates and different features, different idiosyncrasies, and different art inhabiting it. Uh, so Dr. Masson, you and I have been teaching this play for many years now. Um, give us your initial thoughts on the play, Shakespeare, and his status in the literary canon of the West. Oh, <laughs> just a small task. <laughs> um, well, I mean, Shakespeare's been, uh, most of us who studied English, even in high schools, certainly in Canada, had a pretty regular diet of Shakespeare. Every year we, we would have received one play uh, in high school from, in my case, grade nines to, through 13. Uh, but I think Shakespeare is pretty much uh, has been a staple diet in the English curriculum for quite a while. And, and largely because Shakespeare was considered in the English speaking world, um, as certainly as far back as the Romantics, as the uh, writer in English uh, without parallel. Arguably, um, his only rival would be John Milton. Uh, but Shakespeare was uh, agreed by one and all to be a great writer and uh, so much so that I mentioned that when I was in the UK doing my doctoral studies I used to listen to a program called Desert Island Discs uh, at the outset of which the host would um, or rather the conclusion of it the host would say okay you're on your island and um, you're allowed to have one book along with you and and you can choose any book that you want aside from the Bible or uh, the works of Shakespeare. And the reason they do that is because those would have been the standby for everybody. I want, want, I want those two books with me. And then, and if they didn't say, you can't have those two, um, they would repeatedly say one of those two and it would just become tedious. So which beside those two? So the assumption of, for English speakers is that you would be acquainted with the works of Shakespeare and the Bible and regard them as basically sacrosanct and strongly identified with, with English speakers. That is no longer the case. Uh, and it's, it's a rather shocking turn of events because uh, as far back as 1982, I think, in uh, Terry Eagleton's literary theory, he, he presents as a hypothesis that there might be a time in which we might no longer regard Shakespeare as literature but it's a it's an absurd hypothesis that he presents at the time because it's it's literally unthinkable. But according to Eagleton's own approach to lit theory at the time, uh, it, it wasn't just hypothetical. He regarded uh, literature as a form of political ideology, and Shakespeare would have been one of those manifestations. And in our day, we've moved so far away from regarding great works of literature as things that are of general universal human interest that ought to be cherished, uh, uh, revered, uh, and 
we could demonstrate that that was so because Shakespeare's is revered in Germany as he is in England and, and Japan, and he's been translated into a multitude of language and regarded as a great writer. Um, we've moved so far away from that now that Shakespeare is now being uh, airbrushed out of even English-speaking curriculum. That's right. There's actually a considerable number of universities in North America where you can get a BA in English and never read a single work by Shakespeare. So you'd get out, you'd have your degree, uh, and uh, you wouldn't know the first thing about Shakespeare. Um, and that is a new development. Um, I share with you a, a sense of shock and dismay that this is the case. But on the other hand, um, you and I were just speaking a little bit before we began recording here today. And I mentioned to you how uh, back in my uh, undergraduate days, I took a philosophy of art course. And one of the documents that was put across our desks was an article by um, some Stalinist communist commissar uh, who was outlining the official state position on art in general and literature in particular. And one of the mandates um, that was right at the beginning of that very shocking article was that literature's purpose was to be an extension of the state. And as such, it was to function for propaganda purposes first and foremost. And insofar as the text got in the way of that propaganda efficiency, it was to be excised from libraries, curriculum, uh, you name it. Uh, they wanted to get rid of it. Uh, at the same time, there was another regime that was following on the same path of that. Uh, this is Nazi Germany. And if anybody recalls, uh, for instance, um, their uh, rather hair-raising um, expose of quote-unquote decadent art, you will know the Nazi position on this is shockingly similar to the communist Stalinist position on art as well. Um, and one of the things you hear nowadays in modern academies and the public school system is that uh, Shakespeare is quote-unquote irrelevant. Uh, he's a dead white male who needs to go. Um, he does not fit well with a lot of modern um, ideologies uh, that are being promoted in, uh, in studies in school. And as such, uh, it's easy to just ignore Shakespeare when putting together, you know, um, the requirements for majors in English and literary studies. So, Well, and, and in uh, the state of California, I think the whole of... Uh, Shakespeare certainly been, uh, I think they have regarded Shakespeare as to be removed from the curriculum because he's a dead white male and represents, you know, the usual buzzwords, the patriarchy, white Europeans, etc. Yeah. Um, and the chief, chief representative and so forth. It's interesting. I was just listening to a, an interview um, this morning. I'm not quite sure how, why it came up, but, um, and it was Northrop Fry, uh, Canada's greatest literary critic. Uh, an interview back in 1990 in which he was talking about um, this development. And this is 1990. This is the year I was finishing my undergrad and I actually heard Northrop Fry. This is the, the year before he, before he died. And he was uh, lamenting the fact that contemporary uh, undergraduates were coming to him and asking him and demanding, in fact, that the text that he be teaching them would be relevant. This very word was used. And Fry said that this is what they don't realize, these students, but that he realized, having lived long enough during the regime, etc., was that it was exactly a Nazi demand, that things be relevant. And by relevant, they meant politically relevant. 
socially relevant, immediately relevant. And if it did not fit that, the students did not want to hear it. And so back in the 80s, even when I was an undergrad, we noticed that this, this was happening. And it's, well, it's been a long time since then uh, now. And now the demands for relevance are so strong that people are being deplatformed for saying things that are not just irrelevant, but contrary to the uh, demands of what they term to be relevant, the immediate social political ends. And it is, uh, quite frankly, totalitarian. And there's no doubt about it. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I've observed in this ongoing conversation about the necessity, if you like, of Shakespeare is that many of the people who are in positions of power making decisions as to whether or not he is still taught, as well as a number of other texts you and I would probably regard as great vital texts to the Western tradition and Western culture. Like those we've been teaching. Yes, is that um, these people have never been taught what great literature is and ought to be. They have not been taught how to properly read literature. Uh, they're incapable of close readings. They are unable to supply the background context, which throws the brilliance of a lot of these texts into sharp relief. Um, these are more often than not people who are some form of bureaucrat, um, untrained in the thing they're talking about, uh, but very trained in terms of policy making and stuff like this. Um, but that let's shift to a, a more positive note here and talk about why Shakespeare ought to be taught. And the first reason I give my students, because I do actually have to justify yep. teaching Shakespeare nowadays, sadly, um, is that he constitutes part of that great conversation you and I have been speaking about for so long. Uh, he picks up a lot of the conversation points uh, and he says brilliant, unexpected, insightful things about them the way few other authors have ever been able to do. Yes. Um, he's a tour de force on this front. He's also a master of the literary conceit, uh, which was, of course, uh, a very popular way of doing literary business during the Renaissance, where you would take some shocking, intriguing, insightful idea and lay it out. And then Shakespeare in his plays and his poetry uh, unpacks that in, again, brilliant, amazing, rich ways. So that's to me is reason number one because he's writing great literature about universal concerns about the human condition that are relevant to any reader if he or she is willing to put in the effort of reading those plays or that poetry carefully. What, what, what Northrop Fry or Jordan Peterson would call archetypal themes. Right? Yes, and I'm not a massive archetypal thinker. I'm not particularly Jungian in my approach, but I am sensible to the value of that lens. Um, and of course, Northrop Fry is... Uh, to risk using a dangerous word, obsessed with archetypes. Um, but nevertheless, um, this is this to me is the number one reason we should be reading Shakespeare. There are some other peripheral, peripheral reasons, um, which are perhaps less important, but which are more often cited. Uh, one of these things being that other than the translating committee of the King James Bible, probably nobody has had a greater influence on the development of the English language than William Shakespeare. Uh, we are on the edge of the Great Vowel Shift while well, we're after the Great Vowel Shift and it's in process. And so English is changing radically at an incredible speed like a few other times in its history during Shakespeare's age. And of course, if you change the language, you not only change how you express yourself, you also change, about, change how you think about your world and yourself. Absolutely. So, um, well, I'll, add, I'll add one thing to it, and I, I, I don't agree with the, um, 
presentation per se, but uh, Harold Bloom, a uh, contemporary of Fry's and to some degree a critic of Fry's, um, wrote a book called Shakespeare and the Invention of the Human. Mm. And in that, he argues effectively that the terms, um, uh, the very thing that you spoke about, the language that he's bequeathed to us, was not only the language, but also the, the terms of reference and understanding uh, are ones that we, Bloom using the royal we here, we, uh, and, and probably speaking on behalf of our culture, still tend to understand. Um, and I, I don't agree that Shakespeare invents the human. I do understand what he means to some degree, however, in the sense that we really do think a lot. I mean, why does Shakespeare appeal universally? In Germany, not just in Germany, but in Japan and in, in other countries. Why is that? Why is it that Shakespeare can resonate across cultures, across ages, um, and, and, and across uh, generations, young and old? They all seem to gravitate towards Shakespeare and appreciate him when they're exposed to him. And why is that? And I do think it is because he speaks to matters of human interest in the language that we would like to be able to use ourselves if we had that terrific facility for language which he has that's right you're you're going for not to say that what you're saying is cliched but an old cliche does catch the spirit of that which is this notion that uh, with uh, shakespeare brings up ideas often thought but never so well expressed as boom right there in hamlet in yes. lear in macbeth in yes. whatever it might be um and we also need to be aware and i don't want to make too much and this, of this, play, this play in particular hamlet is the reason we're looking at hamlet is precisely for that right yes hamlet is full of ideas notions phrases soliloquies which are regular usage terms to this very day in day-to-day -day life uh, get thee to a nunnery and uh, you know and it, the, the the cliches again go on and on and on um but i do want to say here and i'm well, first of all, I'd like to say I'm not terribly influenced by Bloom on all right. this topic. Um, Bloom, however, is a very speculative thinker, and he's willing to be wrong all over the place in his conversations. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll grant him that. Uh, but I will say this. Shakespeare and his contemporaries knew the English language was changing radically, and they knew what that implied in turn. And then with that typical renaissance spirit of overreaching of optimism of boundless sort of excitement um they decided to explicitly get involved in that process so they weren't just observing it they were actually getting involved in the process and manipulating is not the right word but uh, it gets to the heart of what i'm trying to say here they wanted to send the english language and the way we think of our world and ourselves down certain paths and they were just quite an extent, as you say, successful at doing this. Uh, a lot of what Shakespeare says and a lot of how he views the world in his plays and his poetry um, remains standard frames of reference to this very day. And I think that's, again, this is another reason one should be reading Shakespeare and studying Shakespeare and thinking deeply about Shakespeare. Um, on a different note, I should also note that Shakespeare never expected his plays to be his long-standing legacy of why no, he did was not. great. Uh, this uh, depends on, on his poetry, both long and short. His sonnet cycle, for instance, yeah. or Troilus and Cressida. Uh, Cressida, depends Cressida. on who you're talking to, yeah. Um, so in some senses, you and I are being a little bit perverse by insisting on foregrounding Shakespeare's play 
Shakespeare probably wouldn't agree with us. Nevertheless, uh, as you've said, this is a great play. There are a lot of front runners for the greatest play of Shakespeare and the greatest play of all time. Um, we could have gone with Macbeth. We could have gone with Lear. We could have gone with A Midsummer Night's Dream. We could have gone with The Tempest. The list is well nigh endless. I take but, all of those. Yeah. Yeah, but Hamlet is a strong, strong candidate for this. So, without a doubt, and and um, and has been seen by the establishment as such as the greatest of his plays. And uh, what, however much we might want to quibble with that, um, I think there's a reason why. Um, that has been thought and it's worthy to engage with it just for that reason anyway. But we've done a lot of intro, which we often do here because there's so many interesting things to talk about here. Yes. Um, we're gonna do a double episode on Hamlet at this rate. Let's- That's okay you know? if we do that, that's fine by me too. Yeah, maybe we might may end up doing that, but- Now you and I have very different approaches, I think, to how we look at this play and teach this play. Uh, I or organize a lot of my thinking and discussion around notions of evil and justice um, and agency in this, but you have a different approach. Tell us a little bit more about that. So you got you look at it as an, a revenge tragedy and so forth, right? Yeah, well, we have to remember that Shakespeare gets nothing from nothing. He's always borrowing heavily upon a series of sources which are perhaps sometimes not very well understood by students, readers, audience members, even actors, producers, and directors. Um, so there are various types of play that Shakespeare draws upon to put his work together. Um, the Revenge Tragedy is one of these. This, uh, has, uh, this type of play has a lineage that goes right back to Roman times. But we have more, much more modern um, instances of the Revenge uh, Tragedy in England and indeed uh, throughout the rest of Renaissance Europe at this point in history. Mm -hmm. So Shakespeare's approaching this type of play and he's doing his own thing with it. Yeah. So for example, one of your standard features of the revenge tragedy is oftentimes you will have some uh, type of being, uh, often a ghost or something like this, at the beginning of the play, signaling that you know there has been great evil done, murder has been committed, something of this nature. And it is a call for justice and revenge. And of course, that immediately opens up that rather juicy topic of where does revenge end and justice begin or the other way around. But we can come to that presently. Yeah, uh, so yep. Go ahead. No, I mean, in Thomas Kidd's Spanish tragedy in 1592, that is exactly what happens. It's just that there the son is killed and um, uh, Hieronimo, I believe it is, yes. seeks, seeks revenge upon his son slain. There's, there's similar sorts of, uh, you know, incidentals to the plot. Uh, a ghost appears, madness is feigned, et cetera, et cetera, very similar. The only difference is the son is killed rather than the father. When I say the only difference, it's a pretty significant difference. Um, whereas here, um, I think we can see other sources. And as you say, this is one of the things that I also always say about Shakespeare at the outset, is that it's amazing for somebody that we regard as so um, imaginative, because that's the word that is uh, ascribed to Shakespeare. And it's the word that the Romantics ascribe to Shakespeare. And what we value above all is Shakespeare is an imaginative writer. And when we think of the imagination, we think of immediately think of the romantic sense of imagination, which is novelty. But Shakespeare is nothing like a novel writer. He borrows, begs, and steals from other writers. And he does so, it, it, true, in a way that makes them quintessentially Shakespearean. But nonetheless, he, he is not somebody who's inventing plots for himself. He's borrowing other plots. 
Yes, I think few writers, great writers prior to the romantics have been more on the receiving end of that romantic notion of creating something out of nothing. And that being uh, the, the more spectacular of thing that you can create ex nihilo, um, the better artist you are. Um, I think that is very much something that has been implied about Shakespeare again and again, very influentially by the romantics. Um, and one of the things I usually start doing with my students right at the beginning of teaching Shakespeare is to explain to them that they need to be thinking in terms of sources, not just for the content of what is being communicated, uh, but also in terms of the structures, the machinery, if you like, of drama, uh, because uh, Shakespeare depends upon uh, in Hamlet alone, he depends upon the dumb show. He depends upon Commedia dell'arte. He uh, depends upon um, the traditions of revenge tragedy. Uh, and there's probably a lot of other machinery uh, which you and I are unaware of, which has been lost in you know the mists of time and all of that. Um, let's talk a little bit also about the sources of content here. And then I'll, I'll come to my take, but let's 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 talk about that because I I I, I think it's more important than my speculation as a critic. Um, what can we not speculate on and say, this is hard stuff that we can point to that is incontrovertible. And I, I, I always think, you know, just as a methodological approach, let's, let's model what we effectively do ourselves. And you and I both approach uh, literature in the same way. Let's, let's yeah. look at those. Some, those okay. Things. So in terms of content, we're more or less solidly uh, sure that um, Saxo Grammaticus, the Scandinavian historian, um, is front and center in terms of source material. Um, but Shakespeare's good friend Ben Johnson said of Shakespeare at a certain point that Shakespeare was able to read texts, oftentimes even mediocre and banal texts, and generate almost infinitely more insight off of a reading of these substandard, quote unquote, substandard texts. And I think to some extent, that's what we're seeing here with Hamlet. Uh, Shakespeare reads Saxo Grammaticus. Um, he's struck by a story. He's struck by the possibilities that may lay dormant within that narrative. And then being Shakespeare, he just explodes them into a spectacular creation. So Saxo Grammaticus um, is 1200 AD, by the way. That's right. So he's a, med he's a medieval historian. Um, I believe if I'm remembering the title correctly, it's the deeds and something of the Danish Kings or something like this. Okay. Um, but I've read that 20 years ago, I think it was anyway. So this is something that we're relatively certain of, uh, other sources, Scott. Well, let, let me go into the Saxo. So okay. the King of Denmark is murdered by his brother in Saxo's account. Mm -hmm. He marries his brother's wife. Um, the son of the uh, dead kings is named Hamlet with a B um, and he seeks revenge feigns madness is tested by the new king gives himself away um, no ghost um, no play within the play these are Shakespearean uh, inventions likewise the other source I have is Bell Forest 1576 but similarly um, he rebukes his mother becomes reconciled with her returns to England gets revenge but again, no ghost, no play within the stories. He probably gets this, borrows this from uh, the Spanish tragedy. But, but, but I mean, that's hypothetical, but it's a, yeah. he's writing a revenge type of tragedy. He could have had kids. He's got a variety of uh, sources in mind here and he makes it his own play. Very much so. 
yeah. there are. So, but uh, one thing that I point out, and this is what makes it so interesting to us and the Romantics, is that there are no obstacles to Hamlet's revenge. There's no external obstacles. There's nothing to prevent him from uh, taking vengeance upon his uh, uncle. Yes. Internal. Um, yeah, it, Hamlet is very much a protagonist who lives in his own head. Right. Um, and uh, the demons that he encounters largely are demons of his own uh, his own mind. And of course, or are uh, they? Well, I mean, the, the issue of Claudius's guilt, obviously, yeah. is central to the play. And we have to remember that when we're dealing with, especially with a Shakespearean tragic hero, um, that Hamlet is obsessed with truth and justice. Um, remember what he's studying. He's studying theology in Wittenberg in the yes. play. Yes. Um, and so he's, we have to acknowledge a couple of things at the front end that are indicated by this. A, the character or the yeah the character of hamlet is probably younger than he is usually cast as in a lot of productions of hamlet uh this is a young man um he's probably my guess is anywhere between 18 to 25 or thereabouts it's a guess it has to stop there but i mean this is classic university age remember in uh, at this point in history um people would begin university somewhat younger they would probably begin around the age of 16 or 17 yeah and then they'd probably do a ba and then if they were really promising they'd go on to a, an ma um so we know that he's young that's important because young people have developmental stages where they are more concerned with justice and injustice and then that gets modulated by other factors as they mature For sure. um so he's a young man second of all He's studying a very difficult, very controversial subject because in some senses, theology and philosophy uh, have a degree of interchangeability. That's sure. controversial for me to say, I know, but there's, there's a lot of crossover at this point in history in studies between theology and philosophy. So but, this is that Hamlet is smart. He's yeah, that, smart. Yes. And we cannot ascribe much to him on the grounds of being thick or not terribly clever or just having made simple intellectual mistakes that's unlikely with this character mm. and we find that that's very consistent throughout the play he realizes things that other people around him are not realizing and that kind of sets him apart from uh, from uh, the other characters in hamlet okay so i agree with that and it's it's essential to see him as a contemplative as opposed to a man of action uh he has a foil there in fact there are foil shakespeare always uses foils in, a, in his plays and he has multiple foils here, uh, one of them being Laertes, of his, uh, the love of his life, Ophelia's brother, the other being uh, Fortinbras, um, who comes in at the end. So he has two foils there in a sense. So two young men who are very um, similar to Hamlet on one level and very different on other levels. Both of the latter two are able to act and, and hot-headed at that to some degree. Um, but there's also the thing that you mentioned, and this is my take on it, and one of the great questions is why Hamlet is unable to act. And it's partly due to what you've suggested, it seems to me, the fact that he is a contemplative and wants to make certain because he's interested in justice. And I, there's no dispute over that for me. For others, they ascribe different motivations there. So uh, in the historical uh, survey of critics on this some have said it's because he feels guilty uh because his father's dead because actually he wanted him dead because really he has a thing for his mother 
Oh, it's a Freudian thing. A Freudian thing, right? So, and this is this has actually been posited by Ernest Jones in a an article called Hamlet and uh, Oedipus, and and really, and I've seen it portrayed on on stage. Hamlet literally on top of his mother, sort of, you know, doing what he's doing. Doing what he's. I mean, it's ridiculous. But but I've actually seen it portrayed this way because really, people are trying to struggle to well, maybe they just. <laughs> maybe the directors themselves have issues, but <laughs> but in general, they're trying to ascribe what, why can he not act here? And they can't figure it out. Now, so my take on this, you asked me, and, and the take is this, Hamlet has gone to Wittenberg. Wittenberg is the center of Protestantism. It's the place in which Martin Luther nails the theses, 95 theses to the Wittenberg door announcing the Reformation. And it, it is a center for that. And Hamlet is sent there. Now, anybody in Shakespeare's day knows what Wittenberg stands for. It stands for Protestantism. So he's been sent there. And not only has he been sent there, he is the firstborn son. And that's important because the firstborn son is now being sent to a place that, where he's effectively going for theological training with the aim probably of being a priest or in Protestant terms, he's going to be a, uh, a preacher. Uh, he's, he's going to be a minister. Uh, and, and he's the firstborn because you don't send your firstborn to, uh, in fact, Luther's own father was so outraged with him because he was his firstborn and he sent him into the law. He wanted him to be a man of the world. He was going to inherit his father's fortune. Don't go into the monastery and, and go into effect, effectively a worldly irrelevant path of life. And yet Hamlet's father has sent him to Wittenberg because of Protestant convictions. Okay, so what's the problem then? His problem is not only has his father been killed, he sees his father's ghost and his father's ghost suggests that he is in torment in some place like purgatory. But Protestants regard purgatory not to exist. It's the doctrine of demons according to Luther and his peers. And so Hamlet is faced with a theological dilemma here. His father, who he sees in front of him, is telling him something that he believes in his heart is true, and yet it's being told to him by a man who appears to be in purgatory, which he thinks must be false. And so that's the dilemma. And it's not just that he needs to make certain, he needs to make certain in the face of conflicting truths. Yeah, I, I do think that there is a parallel, um, largely accidental, between Oedipus Rex and the play Hamlet, in that the protagonist in either play is obsessed with, in the case of Oedipus, in my view, truth first and justice second, and in the case of Hamlet, justice first and truth second. But nevertheless, they're both obsessed about these things, and they're beginning to also understand, they're at that, again, I mentioned that uh, psychological maturation trajectory. Mm. They're at that phase of life, generally speaking, where they're realizing that their understanding of the world, especially the moral and ethical world, the world of justice, is always an imperfect construct, and yet they have to act. And I think this does a lot to explain um, Hamlet's hesitation. Because Hamlet is also, along with his growing realization of, about the world around him, is a growing realization of the pervasiveness of evil uh, and uncertainty in the world around him. And I'm going to come back and talk about that later on. But I do want to pick up on a minor point here before I forget. You're right. The eldest son 
is never sent to study theology. Everybody in the audience, in the, the original audience for Shakespeare would have known this. It's almost a wearying, um, again, cliche, that um, if you don't know what to do with your later sons, obviously you can always send them into the church, and that was what traditionally was done. So here we have the son who's going to lead, who's being trained in Protestant theology, and we need to explain that. And as you say, very few uh, professors and very few teachers seem to even be aware that that's a major component of the psychological landscape of this play, let alone speak into that in any and sort of... And it's because they're obsessed with psychology and they think it's about psychology, but it's not about psychology. What, wherein is the conflict? There, that's the conflict, I think. It is justice. It is truth. There's no doubt about it. And it's probably primarily justice, as you say. But it's also his own soul is at risk. And that's what he fears. He fears that he's being deceived by something demonic that will lead him to do a, an unjust act. And because he doesn't believe that purgatory exists, it's not just that, that he, the ghosts, it's that purgatory. And then he has this conflict with Horatio. You know, there's more in your, uh, there's more uh, than, uh, I can't remember the exact quote now, it's terrible. In the world that exists in your philosophy, Horatio, your philosophy, no longer his own. Mm -hmm. Horatio and he are humanists. They despise um, Aristotle and the whole Catholic edifice of Catholic theology in the day. But mm -hmm. Hamlet is being shaken by what he's experiencing with his own eyes. Yeah, a lot of people like to read Shakespeare looking for biographical hints and does this and make, make him a crypto catholic i mean some people are saying that these days uh, well what we know uh, one of the things that is as an aside to me very impressive about shakespeare is the fact that we know very very little of the man himself from his work yep. um, he is very careful and he's careful on theological grounds very pointedly and so anytime anybody starts asserting with a degree of confidence that Shakespeare thought this, Shakespeare believed that, Shakespeare, 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 um, I go into a very cautious skeptical mode. Uh, we can't say these things for sure. Uh, but what we can say is we can talk about the play itself. And you're right. Um, Hamlet is a man crippled with uncertainty who yet knows that he has to act, especially in this moral and ethical realm. And what is he then to do? I hear oftentimes his doubts at the beginning of the play, particularly in Act One, uh, uh, described in relatively crude forms. I think you've done a better job here in uh, highlighting some of the complexities of what's going on here. It's not just that it's a spirit who is speaking to him. It's a spirit who claims to be speaking a truth, almost prophetically, to him. Um, and we also have to acknowledge that in Shakespeare's time, <laughs> superstition was actually at quite high a level. We tend to emphasize, you know, the intellectual nature of the Renaissance and its emphasis on reason. Um, and if you're talking about um, some of the poets, other poets of the time, we talk about this marriage of passion and emotion and so on and so forth. T.S. Eliot makes great hay with this. But we also have to remember that this is an enormously superstitious time. Uh, a lot of people think that things like witch trials and stuff like that had their heyday in the Middle Ages. They did not. They had their heyday during the Renaissance. Um, so as soon as you start invoking uneasy spirits, the audience is going to go up a notch. And Shakespeare does this right at the front end. You're reaching for something. Uh -huh. That's a point that C.S. Lewis makes in this work. The... Uh... English literature in the 16th century, excluding 
drama, but he talks about precisely that very thing, that uh, belief in witches and so forth was not uh, characteristic of the medieval period, but rather of the Renaissance, the age of uh, humanism and uh, the rediscovery of reason, allegedly. Yes. Um, and uh, so well, that, that's fascinating. And, and, and I don't think that's been sufficiently acknowledged even to this day in the academy. Yeah, uh, Lewis, you're right. Lewis talks about it in there. A number of other people talk about it as well, but they, yep. you're right. They don't go far enough. We have yet to explain why it is that um, the intellectual and cultural life of the Renaissance thinker um, skyrocketed, of course. It, it was a great age of uh, art and thought. Um, but at the same time, you also have a, an equal and parallel explosion in superstition, oftentimes violent superstition. Mm. Uh, what explains this? Uh, because uh, we tend to think in, in modern terms that uh, as we become more intellectually rigorous and vigorous, that somehow superstition should fade to the background and be exiled. That's uh, like saying it disappears in the Enlightenment and the exact opposite happens there as well. That's exactly. It. So we need to be on full alert here. But in any event, let's come back to your point here about uh, the uncertainty of the spirit. So we have a spirit appearing, um, superstitious um, alerts heighten in the audience. Uh, Hamlet himself is filled with skepticism and self-doubt and doubt in the world around him and so on and so forth. Um, and this begins a process <laughs> whereby, of course, he's trying to get to the truth uh, in some sense. The truth of what? Um, well, as I said at the front end, I approach this from very much the question of evil. Hamlet is at an age where he's discovering that evil in a very tangible sense, in some senses, um, is in the world. That's neither here nor there. But I mean, younger people know that there is evil, but they don't think about it coolly and contemplatively and analytically like Hamlet is in a position to do. Because he hasn't just lost, lost the father. He's lost the king of his kingdom and with it he's lost his place in the court now one of the things that i also find puzzling and maybe you can solve this for me bill uh is why is hamlet not acclaimed as the heir is there something about the danish court that makes him because i would have thought given his years he's now at an age where he's at university that he's old enough to be considered to be the king and yet he has not been acclaimed the king and in fact, if that is the case, then he's a threat to uh, his, his uncle Claudius. And really, he has to get rid of him. We have to remember that in this play, there's a, a crackling imminent violence between Claudius and Hamlet. One of them has to go in terms of royal succession. Yeah. Uh, and one of them will be eliminated. That's uh, just give it enough time. That's going to happen. Uh, and indeed, Claudius at a certain point tries to make exactly that happen. Um, but it's a two-way street. Uh, I don't have any pat answers as okay. to why he has not succeeded. I will say this, though. Hamlet certainly does not have sufficient support in the court for immediate succession. Right. Um, and then we have to ask ourselves, why is that? Well, he's not there for one thing, but, right? Very, very much to the point. And this goes back to your earlier point about him being in Wittenberg studying theology. Um, if you're going to become king... And, and secondly, there's an imminent threat of invasion uh, from Norway. And so yes. there, needs to be, there needs to be somebody in charge to, th to ward off that imminent danger. 
Yes. So he's not there. He's not studied in the right things. He has not made the connections in court. Otherwise, obviously, he would have had the immediate support of the court in order to succeed to the throne. Um, there was another point I was going to make. Because the elder Fortinbras had been slain by Hamlet's father. And it sounds like he, there's some illegitimacy about that. And the younger Fortinbras wants vengeance himself. So he's, again, a foil for Hamlet. And it seems like Hamlet recognizes that his father had done something wrong. Uh, in the way he engages with Fortinbras. We also need to remember, and I know that you talk, you, you talk about this uh, around later authors, particularly as we move into the 19th and 20th century literature, uh, but it's worth bringing up here. A, we tend to forget just how central a figure of, uh, of the king or the queen, as the case may be in England at the time, um, how central they, they factor into the imagination of your average Renaissance audience uh, member. Uh, they are the person who guides the rudder of the ship of state. Yep. Um, and without somebody at that rudder, the whole world is askew. Time it's, is out of joint and everything is, is messed up. If anybody's uh, watched movies, they've seen exactly this happen. So the crown gets taken off the dead, the expiring king's head and put on the new king because they cannot have a, an interregnum that lasts. No. And uh, so the very fact that this place starts with the death of the king means immediately that the whole world is out of joint in the world of uh, Elsinore and, uh, and Denmark. Yeah. Um, second of all, it's not just a king who has died, but as you said, a father who has died, a father who has clearly been a guiding force personally and individually to Hamlet. And Hamlet now loves his just, father. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just gone. So he, the king is gone. The father is gone. And where are we going now? Nobody seems to know. And Hamlet himself doesn't seem to know. He goes in circles. Yeah. Um, this, again, is a point where, you know, we've got the orphaned son trying to figure out his way forward here, especially when he's in a position of authority or supposed authority, and he's supposed to supply solutions. Add one more thing. Yes. His mother is immediately married his uncle. And what the heck does he do with that? Because now even that's gone, right? Yes, exactly. So... This ties into what I usually say about evil in the play, which is that Hamlet is realizing that there is evil in the world and has potentially taken out this guiding force of the father and the king. And it's not just that there is evil in the world. There is evil in Elsinore. And it's not just that there is evil in Elsinore. There's evil amongst the people he trusted and loved. Uh, Claudius obviously is one. Um, his mother obviously is another. Ophelia is being used as a tool by Polonius. So there's yes. potential evil agency as a, as a catalyst at least. At least, Polonius himself is a manipulator. He can't be trusted. Yep. Um, he's looking everywhere and everyone he once looked up to as a guiding force is evil or potentially evil. Not and to be trusted was, at any rate. And then most shatteringly, and I think this is really the key of his paralyzation, he looks as it were in the mirror and sees evil or the potential for evil there too. And, and yeah. now, how is he to strike out against evil on imperfect information um, without himself contributing to it? He himself is actually an agent of evil, and he's smart enough to know this. Yes. Um, and this really... And, it, and his theological studies would acquaint him with that, because again, the Reformation emphasis is precisely on radical evil and original sin and how how deep the sin goes yes so he's traced its concentric rings inward and found himself at the center yep. 
And then we have that famous soliloquy to be or not to be, that is the question, et cetera, et cetera, as he contemplates ending evil. His own life. Yeah. Yes. He's not just killing himself. He's killing or trying to kill evil, but in doing so, risks committing yet more evil. It, this notion also uh, explains lines like, get thee to a nunnery. Why will he not have any, why, why will he not build a relationship, a marriage, and have children with Ophelia? You are, because potentially, if we are all evil, especially at that original, that level of original sin, then to have children is to produce evil as well, and all the, the, the other rings of evil that can spread out from that. Um, he doesn't know what to do with this problem. He's in an, in an impossible situation. That's interesting. Bill, I think, we, I think we got two episodes here on this one, because I think that was sufficiently... Uh, interesting in and of itself but we have so much more to talk about we would do it uh give it short shrift to use shakespeare's term and i think we it deserves a little more so why don't we pick this up next time absolutely okay absolutely let's uh, we'll do hamlet part two at least next time around <laughs> better be <laughs> and then see where that conversation leads us from there all right uh, Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Paidea Today. I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and this beside me here is Dr. Scott Masson, and thank you for listening.